Hello, Inside Scoopers, and happy January 31st, Sunday, the last day of the month. We're on to February already, man. We are. 2021. Hello, Inside Scoopers, and welcome back. If you're new to the group, I'm Rodney Habib. This is the lovely Dr. Karen welcome. Becker. I always say the legendary. You don't like when I say legendary. No. You. you, no. you <laughs> I don't. You're not a legendary fan. I'm trying to think of what, legendary. like what, what's worthy of legendary, but certainly, certainly not. No, certainly yeah. not my introduction. But maybe I think you're legendary. I'm maybe, sure. I'm sure. Inside scooper, show me some hearts if you guys think Dr. Karen Becker's legendary. Thank, we, how, we, oh, we, we all look at you as legendary. Thank you. Peter says, uh, Allie, it's Allie's birthday today. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Allie! Allie. You know, we we met Allie. Oh my God, Happy Peter birthday. has done a phenomenal do uh, job with that yeah. dog. She's a forever pup, a thousand percent. Now, I really, this this next one that's coming up, I really, I took a lot of pride in this. These Italian scientists watched our Facebook Live back in the summer and born of that was inspiration. They were like, huh, is this really that big of a problem over here in Europe and other parts of the world? You know, of course, the way that people are storing their pet foods is a huge issue. Also, people that are buying their foods in bulk and the way that they're storing their foods is an issue, meaning that the foods that they're storing are degrading. So by the time they get to the first or the second bag of whatever they're buying, the second bag is usually obliterated in nutrition at that point. So these Italians got together, they put together a survey. They found that kibble feeders, 75% of kibble feeders bought one or two packages at a time. Now that's a huge problem, right? Mm -hmm. So it, because we've talked about this, I've talked to people who have pet stores, not all people, mind you some people, some retailers that are out there. And what they were doing was to stack bags of pet food. Sometimes you get that obnoxious air in there and the bag is like wobbly on the yeah. pallet. So they would take little tiny like nails or pins or whatever they were using to poke the bags to let the air out of the bag so the bags would sit properly on the pallet. Yeah. Pet parent doesn't know that comes, says, you know, I don't want to make a trip. I live really far. I don't want to come back to this pet store or this wherever you're buying your food from. So I'm going to buy two bags or three bags, take them home. Some of those bags are punctured. Oxygen gets inside, oxidates the bag. You've got a big problem on your hands. You do. You have a big problem on your hands. So we will say this again. Those of you feeding kibble, any ultra processed pet food, store it in your freezer. And the second you open it, try and go through that open bag in 30 days or less. So buy small enough bags that you can turn over your stock quickly. The best thing I can recommend. The second point was, did you get another point before I go into the second point? No. Nope. Second point was that it was taking pet owners, 64% took a minimum of four weeks to consume the entire bag. Why is that a problem? So this whole oxidation, and inside Cooper had a question like what oxidizes? So a couple of different things happen. The outside of kibble, the vast majority of extruded kibble has been sprayed with a palleted. They spray fat on the outside to get animals to entice dogs and cats to eat the food. It's that top coating of fat that oxidizes, which means rancid. It turns rancid and becomes a major source of inflammation in dogs and cats that eat it. Eating rancid fats, you're better off eating no fat than eating rancid fat. It, it's that detrimental to the body. Fats heated at high temperature, which is what happens when kibble is heated, produces advanced lipoxidation end products or ales. And heated rancid fats are about the most toxic thing 
that we can feed our pets. And that's what happens when kibble becomes oxidized. So that's, hence, I remember when we met Steve Brown, he was like, dude, get smaller bags. Like if you don't go through those bags within two weeks, like if you want optimal nutrition, two weeks, that's where you should be at when you buy your pet food. So, you know, we talked about storing it in the freezer, putting it into the freezer. But one of the challenges, what a lot of people were doing was they put the entire bag in the freezer rather than scooping out from the freezer. They would then, when they were ready, remove the bag from the freezer. And then because there was like frost molecules that were in there, it actually even sped that up even faster. Faster. So you're supposed to scoop out the quantities that you want out of the freezer. The other thing here that's very interesting in that study that it says here that almost half of the owners were using those containers that we were talking about. 80%, almost 79.5, were using plastic containers to store their food. So if you haven't had a chance to check out the Pet Food Storage Container uh, Facebook Live that we do, I would highly advise it if you're in this bracket. Now, here's what's interesting. People that home prep. Among the home feeders, the homemade diet feeders, almost 40% stored their fish oil at room temperature. And if you have an amazing fish oil, which means it's the phospholipid or triglyceride form and usually added vitamin E, and you're going through it quickly, leaving your fish oil out, okay, as long as you're turning through it and it's airtight, you would not leave an open container that you can unscrew and pour fish oil. That should be kept in the fridge. But if you have fish oil capsules or in an airtight pump, leaving it out and going through your fish oil in a month is a-okay. If you can't churn through your fish oil in a month or if it has an open, like a, a pourable fish oil or a pumpable fish oil, you for sure need to put that in your fridge. Same with buying foods with added fish oil, I mean, I just wouldn't do it. If you see, if that's a marketing thing that they're putting on the front of the bag, like with added omega-3s or added fish oil, I would say opt for the non-added fish oil because you're just increasing your options for oxidation. And that's a big one, right? A lot of people don't think it's a big deal. I've seen so many people open their fish oil, leave the lid off, leave it on the counter, right? The thing starts to oxidize. I remember reports uh, in the past where people would have issues with punctured pills. Punctured pills where people would be buying fish oil pills and the, the, the seal would be damaged. So they were taking oxidized oil that way from those seals. Yeah. I don't see that a lot. I was going to say. I don't see that a yeah. lot. But I mean, maybe if you're buying those eco brands, like the ethyl ester based type of brands. I, I think that that's the key. Absolutely. There are good ways to produce and refine fish oil, and there are cheap, terrible ways to refine fish oil. It's like the CBD industry. It is like anything that you have to refine to get the end product there's a risk of a poor refining technique. And that's true of fish oil as well. Talk a little bit about ethyl esters because it's something that you, if you all see on the social media posts that say fish oil will kill your dog, it causes oxidation. They're talking about the really cheap, crappily refined fish oil. Yeah, and we've we've done a couple of videos in the different categories of fish oils. So of course, you know, there's a reason when you go into the supermarket and you see fish oils, that you sometimes you'll see them for nine bucks. And then you've got fish oils that can go all the way up to 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks, right? Difference in, yeah. in, 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 and that has to do with processing techniques, right? So the ethyl ester is basically, they call it like the I'm broke, I don't got a dollar, but I got to bring fish oil into my it's, life. It's the least expensive option. Yeah, we need to talk about this because phytoplankton, oil. look, phyto, Not yeah, phytoplankton always comes up, man. Yeah. There is no, you will never get the levels of omega-3 that your body, your dog, your cat requires with phytoplankton. Enviro Health Canada put out a study that showed that combined between EPA and DHA, and we know that those levels are low, uh, 14.4 milligrams, I believe it was, of EPA and DHA per one gram of phytoplankton, which meant that if you were trying to give a standard dog 
50-pound dog, enough omega-3s through phytoplankton, you'd have to give $250 worth a day. And we've talked about this a million yeah. times with um, those suppliers of phytoplankton. Stop telling people to throw away omega-3s yeah. and use phytoplankton because there's not enough in it. Man, there you guys isn't. will get eaten alive. Like anybody that does research to see how what the levels, very easy. The next time somebody tells you you can use phytoplankton for a source of omega-3 fatty acids. Ask them, please provide me with documentation to show me the levels of EPA and DHA in your omega-3, please, and how much I would need to give my pet to give them their daily recommended dosage. You're not going to get an answer. Yeah. So Michelle asks ask a good question. Okay, then what do you do? So phytoplankton in terms of the green powder, like literally homeopathic amounts of DHA and really no EPA. So the acasapentaenoic, which is necessary with the docosahexaenoic, you need both for healthy skin, healthy brain, healthy body, healthy immune system. There is no EPA in phytoplankton. And there's the tiniest, like literally you have to give a pound of phytoplankton a day for a 50 pound dog. It's, it's cost prohibitive. The downside is, Michelle says, what do you do for dogs allergic to anything coming from the ocean? You can get algal oil, yeah. Michelle, which is algae oil. It's not powder. It's a capsule. It looks just like fish oil. It comes from algae, but it's potentized. So it's, it's a strong product. But there again, it's only DHA. There's not enough EPA. So people say, are you telling me that my marine allergic, that my ocean allergic dog or cat is going to be EPA deficient? Yes, they are. They are. You can supply DHA from algal oil, but they're going to be EPA deficient. Unfortunately, it's it's just it's just a myth that doesn't go away. And the problem yeah. is, is a lot of these there's a couple of magazines out there. There's a couple of people that sell the product and they Pushing. they just keep saying, throw away your omega threes and use phytoplankton. It's not true. But so, Renee, just, your spelling anyways. is right. A-L-G-A-L, algal coming from algae. Um, what do I think about squid source omega-3? I think if I like squid, I like sardine, I like krill, all three of those. I like it if it's MSC, Marine Stewardship Council certified, which means it's ethically and sustainably sourced third party. Anything coming from the ocean these days, if at all possible, I have a strong desire to make sure it's sustainably sourced. I like third party testing. So that depends on the company. If you can get third party testing for heavy metals, dioxins, PCBs, that's another bonus. But ethically sourced, I think is uh, sustainably sourced is uh, really important thing when we pull anything from the ocean contaminants and sustainability are our two top questions okay moving on moving now this i really love this next one that's coming up this is pretty cool now we've talked about the magic of melatonin several times but this is a study that just got published on january the 25th walking down the supplement aisle in your local drugstore and you'll find fish oil ginkgo vitamin e and ginseng all touted as memory boosters that can help you avoid cognitive decline well, Dr. Becker, Well, you'll also find on those shelves melatonin, which of course is primarily sold in the U.S. as a sleep supplement. Now, new research points to melatonin marketers, they might have to rethink their strategy and add that it also helps with cognitive decline. In a new study, researchers from Japan showed that melatonin and two of its metabolites help memory stick around in the brain longer and can shield mice in the study and potentially people and potentially dogs, maybe cats. Yes. From cognitive decline. You know, we now we've talked about cognitive decline. We've talked about all of these like lion's mane and all these different things that you can do for cognitive decline, fish oil, mixing with MCT oil. But now melatonin, this new study shows that it should be put into pet parents' toolbox. 
I would agree with that. Melatonin also functions actually uh, as a type, it's not a direct antioxidant, but it functions in terms of firing up a mammalian endogenous antioxidant activity. So melatonin is something that if you are a midlife female with insomnia like myself, I take it every night. I used to, in college, take Benadryl. If you read the studies of long-term Benadryl use in people, it's not good, especially for cognitive well-being. So Benadryl now and then for your pets or yourself, fine. If you're a person that's giving Benadryl constantly, try and switch for sleeping, try and switch to melatonin. So melatonin is uh, does a great job of improving the level of serotonin in your brain. Serotonin being the calming neurotransmitters to fire adequately and normally in the brain. Melatonin is something that I think a lot of people have been afraid of to supplement. In fact, you you have said that you didn't feel comfortable taking it because you thought it might suppress your own. Oh man, of it takes me. Well, look, look at Catherine in the section. Melatonin only uh, puts dreams. me to sleep and gives me wicked dreams. Yeah, man. Gates says there's also studies about melatonin for cancer. You're absolutely That's, right. So we did post that in the dog cancer series. So there yeah. was there's a there's a, a couple studies that show the promotion. So I believe. Don't quote me on this. That melatonin does it cause apoptosis in pre-programmed cancer? It does. It, it does apoptosis in cancer cells. So it's so multifactorial for yes. all of the cool things that it can possibly do. Great comments with people saying, "Listen, I take it and it didn't go well." What I have learned in my genetics class is that a, there are genetic variants in humans, dogs, and cats that allow for your adequate production of melatonin. A lot of people can't produce enough melatonin and that's a problem. But if you are adequately producing melatonin and you supplement with it, you will not, your body won't like it. In which case, just honor your own physiology. If you take melatonin and you find it an amazing gift from the heavens, fantastic. If you take it and say, this is terrible, I, I, I felt horrible, then don't continue giving it. What I have found, I, I absolutely have a variant where I don't produce enough. So it is a godsend for me in terms of helping me to go to sleep. I know I'm getting the side effects of the anti-cancer, antioxidant benefits. And yes, you can give it to animals. I have found it's particularly beneficial for older animals that have what we call sundowner syndrome. A lot of times dogs and cats, as they age, they get their day and night cycles flipped. So they sleep all day and then they are up all night. So if you have animals that have a hard time realigning their day and night cycles, do three things. Take them out in the morning and at night for that 10 minute sniffari. If you have a dog in the morning, they need those melanopsin reception in the back of their eyes, need bright blue light to wake them up. And before you go to bed, even if you have an ancient dog that can't necessarily do a lot of walking, just getting them outside at dusk and dawn, when the sun is coming up or going down to where your dog can see that it's turning nighttime, it will signal, believe it or not, as the sun is setting, that orange light that happens in the evening tells your dog to produce melatonin. Now, if your dog can't produce enough melatonin, supplementation is great. The question is how much? Three milligrams for dogs under 30 pounds and six milligrams for dogs over 30 pounds. And I just get, I don't get extended release or fast acting. I just do regular old melatonin. Read the label because sometimes melatonin is combined with vitamin D and other things that you don't necessarily want to be giving, but just straight plain melatonin for animals that have sundowner syndrome is a really nice gift to you because it allows your dog or cat to sleep all night. Kitties, one milligram. 
before bed can do an amazing job at helping to improve healthy neurotransmitters, helping them reestablish normal circadian rhythm where they're sleeping at night and hopefully allowing you to sleep at night. Lauren says, how do you know if it's helping dogs and cats if your dog or cat goes back to a normal circadian rhythm where they're sleeping through the night and they're not getting you up? It's working. So if you give it, Lauren, and there is no response, try it a couple times. But if that happens, your animal doesn't need supplementation. But for animals that are melatonin deficient, it can be a godsend. How fascinating, though, all of these benefits, all of these studies that come out on yeah. melatonin, man, I think it's just something that needs to be in the in the toolbox when it comes to cancer prevention. Yeah. When it, Now, memory, of course, sleeping better. And then just, you know, there's been a couple of studies that have come out. And we've talked about the sleep disturbances in dogs and dogs that have more sleep disturbances, meaning dogs that have been in pain, right, that aren't sleeping good, maybe... A noisy household where the dog has to be keeps getting up on multiple multiple times what it, what it does to behavior and it can actually yes. according to science it ages those dogs faster right those disturbances yeah. ages your dogs and i'm sure cats faster when they're interrupted in those uh, during those uh, sleep spikes how about get. it so rodney's really into studying the sleep spindle cycle of dogs and routers and listen we are not saying routers are the end-all be-all but let me tell you Dogs and cats are absolutely sensitive to EMFs. If you start noticing that your dog or cat is agitated at night, yes, you can use melatonin, but honestly, consider shutting off your router and just see if you get instantaneous realignment of the circadian rhythm. We have seen that over and over in animals. If you are, especially if you're on a 5G network, just turning your router off at night, animals go back to sleep. So just my two cents in terms of EMF. I was super excited when I saw that study because I mean, there's always questions that people keep asking all the time. How on earth do I prevent cognitive decline in my pet? I thought that was just good for sleep. Who knew that it was also good yeah. for protecting the brain and keeping those important memories uh, in your head. So there you go. Super exciting. Now you were talking about gut bacteria. I wanted to throw this study in only because this this new study blew my mind. It's more focused, of course, into the human space of things, but I gotta feel I got a feeling there's also gonna be a correlation somehow that this you know will make its correlation into pets. But check this out. This headline really rattled me this week. Metagenomic analysis finds 90% yeah. of US infants studied lack the key bacteria, uh, the key gut bacterium for breast milk utilization and immune system development, 90% of today's infants, their immune systems aren't developing properly. This, this study makes my hair stand up because all I can think about, in fact, the researchers even say it in the study, the fact that they're, they're calling it newborn dysbiosis. So babies are being born with dysbiotic guts from the antibiotics that their mamas took either during pregnancy or pre-pregnancy, as well as C-section and infant formula that doesn't have necessarily the right blend of macros to foster adequate and balance microbial growth in babies' guts. It's called neonatal dysbiosis, which is heartbreaking to me because when you think about not only is that microbiome critical for their immune system, but they can have lifelong immune issues from from being born with dysbiosis. Yeah, it's just exactly what you just said. Quoting the article, it has been shown that the disruption of, uh, to that neonatal gut microbiome mm. dysbiosis may be relevant to continued problems such as increased risk for Im immunological disorders later in life and acute chronic inflammation, the researchers noted. Now, the reason why 
you know, I put this in here because, of course, you know, the inside scoop, we're talking about pets. I mean, there, there's so many things in science that are translational, right, that yeah. move over. So they think it's multifactorial, right? So first of all, could C-sections be increasing this issue? We've talked about that before. I know here in Canada, they've done, they did a study, very famous study, that the sickest people in Canada who were constantly sick all the time or had issues were traditionally people that were born through a C-section. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that, yeah, right? Yeah, it is what it is. The other, the other issue is the increased use of antibiotics, meaning that there's more antibiotics. How many dogs and cats, especially pregnant females and potentially males before yeah. inception, like go through rounds and rounds of antibiotics and how that affects you know, the pup that or the kitten that comes into your life. And then also the increased use of infant formula. Also, they attribute that potentially to that problem. But my gosh, 90% of the infant study, man, I mean, that is crazy. Well, and those of you that have done rescue, you we call them bottle babies. You are probably aware, like I am, that when animals are born either via C-section or when they're raised on Esbalak or K KMR, puppy or kitten milk replacers, if they don't have mama early on, they're different. Their immune systems are different. Their behavior is different. They're, they're different animals. And one of the best things you can do with neonatal puppies and kittens that are orphaned, either mother rejected them or mom and dad died for whatever reason, one of the best things you can do is get young puppies and kittens in with another mama uh, expose them to microbiomes of dogs, their own species early on, uh, but also add probiotics, including microbiome fecal tr uh, transplants into puppies and kittens can be life-saving. Now, they're not doing that for kids, it, you're, uh, sadly, but that's really what these kids need. Symptoms that you have dysbiosis in neonates are colic and recurrent diaper rash are the big symptoms that a baby's microbiome are unbalanced. So, I would also say those same things can apply for orphan puppies and kittens. Getting those animals around adults with a healthy dog or cat microbiome and using soil-based probiotics or fecal-based probiotics can be a godsend for dogs and cats. This this really kind of reflects, uh, like after reading this study, after seeing that study, like we were, I think we were in the park walking Chuby and all of a sudden I read it and like literally my heart stopped reading it. It makes me just think about almost like if an FMT almost should be mandatory when these breeders ha are in this situation yeah. where the mom has to go through like emergency rounds of antibiotics. You get a puppy with Gerardia. Like how many Gerardia puppies do you see that Giardia. just but you know, Gerardia puppies that you see that have these yeah. lifetime issues? Could these be rectified early on with an FMT? If I was to name a Giardia a name, I would name him Gerard, what, Gerald. Gerald the Giardia. Every time I say Gerardia, you attack me. In Canada, Gerard, Gerald. In Canada, we just pronounced it Gerald. like icing sugar. We talked about this many Gerald. times today at the supermarket when buying props. Gerald, and you saw icing sugar in America. You guys don't call it icing sugar, and we don't call it Gerald. You guys call Gerald. it like powdered sugar. Yeah, powdered sugar know. in America. Sugar. And when I told you icing sugar is what we call it in the United Kingdom and in Canada, you attacked me. In the supermarket. Sherry and Kelly said Claire Labs is amazing. Claire Labs, I have used their probiotics extensively. Is it 60 bucks or 80 bucks? It is, but it's well worth it. Very expensive, but very effective. So if you know anyone that has is struggling with a neonatal child human that is that's probably dysbiotic, either the baby has gone through antibiotic therapy or mama had antibiotics during pregnancy or lactation, Claire Therabiotic 
complete for infants, beautiful gift. Now, so on so on that note, just to, to wrap this one up, I'll, I'll tell you this. Like, So over the last couple of weeks, I've been seeing so many pet parents that have come up to me with their puppies that are having just, like they literally bring them home and they are like digestive disasters. Digestive disasters, right? This I can't tell you the success that they've had when you know I've recommended FMTs. Yeah. You know, go get an FMT, contact the lab, have the biome analyzed of the pup or the kitten, yeah. and then literally thirty days of an FMT, and like these dogs have like a like a three hundred and sixty degree turnaround, it, right? It's, I it's, think it's so important because if yeah, you don't miraculous. address it at a young age, like what's happening with these infants, yep. you affect the immune system like for all of time. It just makes you think like if you bring a dog home or a cat home from a breeder, a shelter, yeah. wherever it is, it's almost like, in my opinion, and I've said this many times, mandatory to do a gut biome test just to see what's going on under the hood to prevent future catastrophic problems. Anyways, so Jacqueline says, what's an FMT? A fecal microbiome transplant. So uh, Jacqueline, we've talked about it uh, a couple of times in this group. There's also a video in this group in our library section with the good people of Animal Biome, where we talk about FMTs. And uh, we also did a Facebook Live on metronidazole, where we discuss FMTs as well. As well. But anyways, scary it, science, man. It is. Scary and, you know, and, science. And it's interesting. A couple of people have said, you know, I was at risk of having FMT. They only will use FMTs. It's established now in every major hospital, at least in the U.S., but they're only using it for life-threatening C. diff, Clostridium difficile infection, which is this nosocomial infection that sick people can pick up. If you, you, when you, when the hospital makes you sick, uh, it's called a nosocomial infection, and they can become life-threatening for people who are obviously hospitalized. They can get Clostridium infections that will kill them. The only thing that has saved people's lives is a fecal transplant, which is this ancient technique of transplanting good bacteria into people who and animals that are dying. But it has been proven to be free and incredibly successful. It makes me sad that we reserve it for basically people that are dying. I totally agree with you. If a proactive way would be to every animal that we assume would have microbiome disruption, if mama was on antibiotics or if baby had to have antibiotics, it should be an automatic thing. It's not, hey, let's wait and see if they get dysbiosis and leaky gut and what the ramifications and fallout are a year down the road. Just automatically doing this is a, fa is a fantastic idea. We just don't yet. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? Yeah. It's, just, it's just an incredible way to reset your pet's GI system, or at least give them a fighting chance you to, the nail to, on the head. to prolong longevity. All right. I'm excited about this one. This is, let's get this study in here before Abe beats me. This is a real, this is, this is, this is my, this is the grand finale. Yeah. All right. Generation pup protocol for a longitudinal study of behavior and health longitudinal. Now, the Generation Pup Study is the first longitudinal study of dogs that recruits pure and mixed breed puppies aiming to investigate the relative influence of environment and genetic factors on a range mm -hmm. of health and behavioral outcomes, including separation-related behaviors, aggression to familiar, unfamiliar people, or dogs and obesity. Holy smokes, I am so excited about this study. Now, it's coming out of the UK, right? So imagine now we're looking at things in the environment, things that are related to food, things that are related to nutrition, what could be potentially shortening or lengthening our dog's lifespans? The fact that it's 3,800 dogs is nice. Rarely in veterinary medicine do we get that type of cohort or sample size for research. So I like big studies because they give kind of a sweeping overview of what's going on. 
So when you look at the list, so ear infections, otitis, yeah. periodontal disease, gum disease, anal sac disorders, degenerative disease, which falls into musculoskeletal like arthritis, as well as kidney and liver disease, organ degeneration, vomiting, diarrhea, obesity, and heart murmur. When you look at all these things, can heart murmurs be genetic? Yes, of course. But they're equally as relevant to be environmentally induced. When you look at this list, the vast majority of this list is all environmental, which means it's how we are raising our dogs that is creating the symptoms. And more shockingly, 76% of dogs went in for wellness exam. It's a it's first crazy. opinion. It's so crazy. they went in as well dogs and the vet said, your dog isn't as healthy as you think it is. Now, one of these symptoms going on, they're not life-threatening, most of these. Heart murmurs can progress into congestive heart failure. Vomiting, diarrhea, and obesity, usually all dietary related. Anal sac disorders, now, 10% of dogs that have recurrent anal sac disorders, the anal glands may genetically be set in and deep in the body, which is just like women that are born with tips. Uh, uteruses, it's just how your body is made. But generally speaking, the vast majority of anal gland issues in dogs is because we get in there and squeeze the heck out of them all the time and we set up a recurrent issue, not to mention the it's the last part anal glands or the last part of the GI tract. So chronic recurrent GI irritation, anything that causes colitis or GI irritation is going to irritate the anal glands. All of these symptoms are representative of lifestyle obstacles, in my opinion, which means it's the environment the animal's in a lot of it relating to food that creates unwell animals. My gosh, almost 76%. Yeah. One or more problems when they take their dog in. That study in itself was hugely eye-opening. The second part to that was the behavior section here. This one on the bottom, that guy. So this, this, this exact same survey discovered that 76% of dogs found one or more behavior issues that they would like to correct. Now, when we interviewed the geneticists and board certified behaviorists for Forever Dog, they said, listen, for many breeds, there is a higher than normal quotient for genetics to play into temperament and genetics can play into behavior. There's absolutely no question. And that's something that people say, listen, it's all about how you raise a dog or cat. Absolutely. Environment trumps genetics, but we can't disregard the fact that there is a genetic interplay to certain behaviors. So when you think about kind of the perfect storm, which I would say is puppy mill dogs when, or puppy mill animals in general, where they're not breeding for the health and well-being of those animals. They're breeding for a, a paycheck. They don't give two hoots about the genetic diseases that they're passing along. They don't give two hoots about the environmental well-being. They don't give two hoots about the emotional, mental, or even physical well-being of these animals that are just being bred in perpetuity. The stress that those animals are under are epigenetically influencing whole litters. Now, if you're doing rescue, you end up taking animals that have genetic flaws and probably some behavior flaws. But if you are buying animals, it's really important that we support only breeders that recognize, yes, we need to be focusing on diversified, resilient, strong genetics. But equally as important is early socialization. Between four weeks and 14 weeks is critical. The first half of socialization has to occur with puppies at the breeder or rescue. So the fact that 76% of dogs have a behavior problem that people would like to correct tells me we need more early puppyhood socialization conversations. We need more first year of life. What are we doing to create good canine citizens out there that feel balanced and calm, feel comfortable in the skin, know how to react to stressors and in environmental changes? That is partially creating by 
created by the breeder and the guardian at that young age. But we can't discount genetics. And the fact that it's the number one reason that dogs are dumped at pounds, as well as euthanasia, plays into the fact that we have a lot of behavior issues that go unaddressed to the point that people are at red zone cracking and they don't know what to do and they dump their animals yeah. or euthanize them. Yeah, that second, that sentence right under that highlighted area is, uh, is, is really sad, right? Yeah. Number one reason why dogs. So, I mean, it's life saving, right? If people can kind of step up and, you know, and address these type of catastrophic issues is the yeah. best. And just, just all the new science that's, that's been coming out, you know, we talk about it every single week, all this, um, we flashed the study last week, I believe with, you know, with the gut microbiota of aggressive dogs, how it looked different than happy dogs, right? You know, yeah. firmicutes were up, uh, bacteroides were down, fusobacteria in some cases would be up, fusobacteria would be down. The more that we learn as far as the gut biome, genetics, so on and so forth, as pertaining to behavior, uh, the more that we can implement and the more that we can change. And so I am super pumped about the Generation Pup study. And we end with the fact that are you spending the afternoon looking for orange-legged birds? Look, inside scoopers. This is a calling to all of you. When you go outside, if you happen to see a seagull, the first thing that you should address, pull out your phone, because if they have orange legs, you've just seen a rare bird in the first time in Canadian history and the second time in continent history, the rare Cameron gull, AKA the Siberian gull. If you happen to see the rare orange-legged gull in your area, please take a picture. You could just take it from like the shins down. You don't have to get the whole bird. Just take like a shin shot, post it. Rodney's starting a collage. Inside Scoopers, thank you all for tuning in. Another awesome week. I hope you have an awesome week coming up and an awesome February that's I hope coming up. you have an awesome week coming up. Next I week's my birthday, isn't it? That's it's Rodney's birthday. The next podcast will be on my birthday. I will be here celebrating with you guys nice. my birthday. It's also Super Bowl Sunday, by the way, for people that watch football. It's going to be very interesting. Get out there. Like Caitlin said, play with your dogs, play with your cats. Have an awesome weekend. Dr. Becker, always awesome. Nice to usual. thank you for your The legendary breath. Dr. Karen Becker who's alive. The, I, I am alive and well. And Rodney, excellent graphics. Despite the fact that we had tech failure, beautiful job this morning. Oh, you, just, you don't mean Gerard. It. You don't mean it. Gerardia. <laughs> <laughs>